Hello and welcome to the Life on This podcast. It's me, Sanderson, your host, and the Life on This podcast. If you've been here before, you'll know it's dedicated to helping you live your life as fully as possible. And to do that, we go and speak to scientists, to thinkers, to outstanding people in a whole range of different fields. And today we've got Andrew Copson, who is the leader of the British Humanist Association, or I think the Humanists UK now. And on the Life on This podcast, we look both to science and the latest research, but also see how it can be integrated with ideas from spirituality. And for 125 years, the Humanist Association has been helping uh, people lead ethical lives uh, by sort of finding non-religious ways to do it. And so he's a great person to speak to, also quite challenging, uh, and as you're going to go and discover, as you know, he sort of challenges some of the premises of what we're doing at the Life on This Project. But uh, I really love this conversation. So this is Andrew Copson speaking to us about what humanism can teach us in the 21st century. So, Andrew, welcome. We always uh, ask uh, our guests one question to kick off, which is uh, what was the uh, spiritual, philosophical or religious background to your childhood? So uh, go for it. And do people have a good answer to that? I mean, that's taken me a do. bit by surprise. <laughs> Some people have an instant, do, yeah. instant answer, do they? Um, I didn't have any spiritual background to my childhood, of course, but I suppose that the, the, the philosophical background, I don't know. I've, I've thought about this because people like you ask questions like that and so you've got to have an answer and uh, I think that on reflection it was a combination of two things firstly um, I think there was a strong class element to my upbringing which was a a Midlands working class family which I've always in retrospect in particular feel had had a lot of sort of unexcavated unacknowledged values and beliefs um, that I'm that that I'm only now aware of Um, There was strong social cohesion. Um, I suppose there was a cooperative element to the way they lived. You know, my great grandmother took in lots of refugees when in Coventry during the Second World War, and was very open-minded. You know, sort of the sort of roll out the barrel mentality, which I can't stand personally, but was just the sort of thing that got them going um, when they were growing up. You know, in five people to a room with no toilet. And that sort of feeling. Um, and then I suppose because I was whisked out of all that and into uh, grammar school and had a very elite education and became a classicist at university and so on, there was at the same time a sort of set of values which weren't quite in contradistinction to those, but they were sometimes in a little bit of tension, um, but which uh, got their claws into me at an early age um, of sort of, well, the values of the Hellenic world, really, I suppose. I started getting very obsessed with the ancient world and... Um, uh, the valleys of the ancient Greeks, which probably is where my humanist ideas began, although my family were all humanists as well. And then I suppose there was Star Trek. Star Trek is the third big influence on my uh, childhood, um, which again is a sort of, there's not much difference really between actually Star Trek and the Hellenic philosophy. So um, uh, that's probably, put that in a pot and shake it about. Um, and that, that, that was probably what coloured my, my values from an early age. So fascinating to me to hear because there's so many resonances. Obviously, we're both huge Star Trek fans, Andrew and I, but also yes. what you call the Hellenic influence, by which you mean what the values of ancient Greece, right? The classical values? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, anything that we say about ancient Greece is obviously a bit of a construction, um, but broadly speaking the idea that you know human beings are here and we're now and the universe is essentially indifferent to us so if we're going to carve out a space for you know living together well having our own values pursuing meaning and purpose and all the other things which are important to me as I'm sure they're important to you then you know we've got to do it Um, and that sort of noble idea about what the human being is and what the human being is capable of and what the human being ought to be about um which was not, of course, evenly applied at the time to every human being, but which, if it is evenly applied now, as, as, as obviously we know it should be, um, to every human being, I think is the sort of the Hellenic ideal that I'm talking about, yeah. 
no one after they says that is really inspired by ancient Greece. Oh, what part of it? Really some close sexual relationships between uh, young boys and older men to sort of like help them grow up. And that's Well, you know, very we may few not people say, say that, that on the today. podcast. You don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, people don't, don't really say that. I loved it when you were making your point that then, as if, uh, and then probably in contradistinction to another part of my life, I was like, yeah, maybe in your sort of Westminster's working class background, the word contradistinction might not be bad. <laughs> about quite so much <laughs> my dad's mum thought that i should get a trade of course thought that i should go onto the the dunlop assembly line or whatever and i remember the, the year after i within the first year that i graduated from oxford as a classicist you know or ancient modern historian by then um i remember that my dad phoned me up i can't remember what it was about he, he died um just a couple of years after that but phoned me up and and said of course completely opposed to to to, to classic that side of the family to classics and to any sort of um, ed, not education, that'd be too harsh, but you know, um, that sort of thing was sort of not what they thought people should be going into because it didn't have much job security. And he said, What are you doing now? And I said, Oh, I'm unemployed. And there was a sort of heartbeat. And he said, Oh, what a shame after all that education. <laughs> I believe in and working felt obviously classics. there was a victory there. <laughs> Andrew, do you feel like uh, I'm just asking this because I feel this way sometimes? So I'm just interested since you mentioned it that those with the sort of Hellenic mindset, which I totally resonate with, do you feel a little bit out of time? Like that maybe the culture in which we live is not quite in tune with that set of values. I, I feel like I'm a bit of a misfit. I don't know whether you ever feel oh. that. Um, yes, I suppose so. Um, I'm only realising quite recently that sort of people don't think exactly as I do about everything. <laughs> Isn't that um, so it's, I've recently sort of through, through an effort of reading reality as I would like it to be, sort of managed to maintain to myself the, the fiction that everyone is sort of going around following the Hellenic idea. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's true. There are two principal ways, I guess, in which that is the case. Firstly, is that, of course, um, the idea of, you know, human reason and um the uh essential knowability of things and and the importance of of using our our senses and, and gathering evidence in order to understand things and no more than that you know not importing other concepts and that that's obviously under uh under threat and i suppose there is an ethical um there's a way in which there's there's people are ethically today at odds with the Hellenic ideal as well. And I think that's very interesting. Obviously, there's the, there's the obvious threat, which um, is that, you know, a lot of old monotheistic Christian morality still colours the world, especially where you are in the United States, of course, but, but everywhere in the West. And that's obviously greatly at odds with, with, with the Hellenic ideal. I've never really been able to, to come to grips with, with the whole Christian thing as, as, as a result of it being so different from what I believe and was brought up with and everything else. Um, but I suppose the other thing is I'm only increasingly coming to realise that there are other um, aspects of, of modern life which are uh, sit very uneasily with the with a sort of Greek idea that aren't religious. But I was reading an interesting article, I can't remember who wrote it, someone, someone in, the, in the Times, the London Times, I should say, in case this is in America as well, um, about the the anti-humanist nature he didn't use that word but that's how i read it um of um of of, of sort of the transhumanist movement and he was not not just the movement but he was also writing about like productivity and american companies in particular thinking how can we how can we optimize the human you know unit in our workplace to be producing this and producing that and he was going more broadly and saying aren't we all asking too much of ourselves and being you know um uh unrealistic about what we want and I think that you and so that's that anti-human element which is so un-Greek if we're going to sort of stick with that theme um of thinking you know maybe we can even transcend death you know e even our mortality isn't and what else makes us human in the Greek mind apart from the fact that we're going to die you know in the, and in the humanist mind too of course um so there's all of that and even some environmental uh campaigners I think especially sort of the deep green you know humans are a plague on earth type people um can not those who are in favour of sustainability for future generations of people and to, to live live well within the environment sort of today. Um, but some people who sort of feel that human beings are a bit of a... Um, a menace. A blot. Yeah, menace. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Those sorts of ideas are so far from, um, uh, from my ideas. 
I do still think, you know, in my heart of hearts, that with 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 uh, that old aphorism that man is the measure of all things, and um, you know the conscious the consciousness in the universe and so on. And so, yeah, I do find a lot of life today at odds with those uh, beliefs. And we all uh, we have a follow up question, which you might find equally as perplexing. But again, you can answer. <laughs> no, I'm in my in... stride now, Samson. I'm ready. Hit me with anything. What elements are there of uh, religion or religious life that you think uh, the secular world could learn from? Uh, yeah, so could be big, could be small. That's a difficult question to answer because I don't know much about religion. I mean, I mean, I've, I've I found myself, of course, working with a lot of religious people, especially over the last fifteen years. You know, and I was on the religious education council here in the UK for for a long time and working with a lot of religious people. But what can what can the secular world learn from religion? I suppose that's an odd question in a way because those those worlds are so intermingled, are they not? I mean, I suppose I don't really see them as separate. Um, what can the secular world do? Well, it is a bit of a pose, actually. Having said I was in my stride, you've taken me, taken me right out of it again. I don't know what religions are you thinking of. I mean, I, I have to be honest. Maybe my answer is nothing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I've never found anything um, admirable uh, inside any religions of which I'm aware um, that is, you know, somehow unique or distinctive of religions. I suppose um, it would would be my answer. Um, and, you know, the, the conventional answers that I suppose sometimes might give, like, you know, community or uh, having ways of marking particular things or telling ourselves a story about human beings. Uh, you know, I don't think any of those things are distinctive of religions. And I suppose that's partly because I, I've, I've never found it was never true in any time in my life that I that I partook of any of those things. You know, when people say things like, Ah, and they're saying it all the time, especially in the garden, right? People who write articles like, oh, it's just so terrible because, you know, we used to have meaning, meaning in our lives and a story and a narrative that made the universe hang together and something to strive for. Um, and now there's nothing and it's so sad. I think, oh, that is sad <laughs> for you that you've got yes. this, this terrible, this terrible situation. But, you know, it's a bit of a surprise to me um, that that was somehow the only, previously, the only... Um, way that people thought they could this person this writer this commentator uh, thought they could uh, make sense of things because I mean most people even in this country in Britain um, uh, 150 years ago weren't going to church you know and, and, and most people through through you know history haven't made sense of their lives through um, a religious frame. I suppose it's a problem in that when lots of people look back at the past, they tend to look at it through quite an elite frame and say so they see sort of educated middle-class Christians and um, uh, telling the big stories to themselves and to society. But, you know, if you look at popular culture, even in uh, sort of pre-modern uh, Europe, where you can still find records of it, it's all about the seasons and human life and relationships with people and um, and so on and so forth. So, um uh, and that's the way that, that I make sense of things. So nothing is my answer. Nothing. There's nothing at all that you can learn from religion. I don't think so. Well, not to my knowledge, but then I'm not really, what would I know about? Surely it's for religious people to tell us what they think we might learn from their, <laughs> from their So this, I want to, I want to push this a bit, but in a, in a sympathetic way, because some days I think similarly to you. And then other days I think, well, there are at least institutional structures that might be good for the secular world to have that it doesn't seem to have done so well at creating. Like, so, so we're particularly interested in the congregation, right, as an institution. Yeah, that seems to me a good sort of institution for people to be able to be part of. And there isn't an easily identifiable secular alternative in my mind, although many secular institutions have done bits. Does that move you at all or are you still not, like not particularly um although i suppose i've always found myself in relatively homogenous social groups uh, i mean to some if, if if what you're talking about is the is the benefits the sort of the moral fortification and the general edification that you get from being part of uh, a group of like-minded people i suppose i've always found that wherever i've been um you know without needing to congregate for that purpose with you know my my peers and friends and and, and colleagues um, I mean, I obviously work at a humanist organization with with people who 100% share my values, you know, so like our every day is like, you know, I mean, I'm in a moral community all the time um, in my workplace. Um, and I certainly, you know, the the friends that I have, maybe this is a flaw in myself, but but, you know, we all have similar opinions. And um, 
and so I suppose I I think I get those advantages in that way. Um, I mean, maybe if, if an anthropologist would take a big step back, they'd look at me and they'd say, what are you talking about? I mean, of course you're in a congregation all, all the time, you know, if that's the word you want to use. And and of course I value that. But um, yeah, I value obviously there's there's a value in like-minded fellowship. Um, there is, um, I said a moment ago, edification and fortification, didn't I? And do you know where I've got that from? I've dredged that up from Harold Blackham and Yap Van Prague, who were respectively the executive director of the British Humanists and the Dutch Humanists in 1952 when they founded IHU, the International Humanist Ethical Union. And they said it, that there was for that the that humanist organizations for, for the edification and moral fortification of their members. How strange. So something, you're right, there must be a, an old congregational bone in me somewhere in, in my body that is resonating with your um, ideas. Um, personally, though, no, I've never, I've never, I've, I've never found that appealing. And I do, and my, my, and I have to say, my experience of encountering the idea that you've um, just expressed has largely been not in your case, um, but in the in the mouths of some people. Yeah, no, and and, and I do ex I do accept present company from this actually. Um, because you're not you're not talking in this way, but I have found it to be rather patronising sometimes from people who've said it, and they they say, you know, sort of, oh, this is a terrible deficit in these people that they need to be, um, you know, uh, have some more values and be together, and you know, I remember people talking about um, black boys, young black boys, in that way when they were talking about social policy in the early early part of this century and talking about the need for church and the need for values for those boys because they were so. Um, uh, lost and so on. Some so in Hackney, I think. Well, you still feel that. See that today. Res resonance is of that in in the government's latest work on race. Um, and so, some, some when people do talk about the need for community, that sense, the need for congregations, I do. I'm a bit allergic to it, and that is partly because I'm a bit of an individualist. We'll also like find it tricky sometimes to find the good things in religion, and yet at the same time work at a uh, non-religious church. But, but I think that it is uh, where it's just like going, it is the it is a religious form in some regards. Right. That's that's how I think of it. I think of it as a pre-religious form. Yeah, it that, is. That of course it is. Religion used, but is not inherently religious. That's how is it I like think a mini tribe, do you think? Yeah. Basically. But then yeah. I think that the uh, also though the history of tribes, it would be very hard to separate them from things which go and look like spirituality like you know if people go and find the the uh kung tribe and what have you they are they will all be doing things which look like religions and like drawings of images of uh various uh beings animals and the like having entering trance states so i mean that that's the thing is like eventually they're speaking the three of us as three secular people with an atheistic viewpoint like all of those things which can be labeled religion, we're going to go and look at the subs the human substrata they arrives from. And so it's like, oh, well, that's well, that's obviously secular. And you go, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's secular, but the people who are doing it would not have that explanation for it. So you can end up a bit Ouroboros-like and sort of eating your own tail. Yeah, I suppose that that's what I meant at the very beginning when I started to not answer your question. Um, <laughs> uh, when, when I said, you know, that are there, you know, that aren't the two things so intermingled, is there really a difference between the religious and secular? That's sort of, you, you've put it better than I did uh, in that moment, Sanderson, which is, yeah, I suppose these are all ways of, of human organisation. And um, I don't find the distinction particularly useful uh, at the social level. I mean, I do think that it becomes more useful when we're discussing the differences between different approaches to life, perhaps, or beliefs. I think then you can start to give the word religious some, some you know, meaning of its own. Um, but surely we know by now that all the forms of social organisation that um, you might have uh, traditionally associated with religion in your own upbringing, um, and I didn't, but, um, but you might have and others might have, um, are just human ways of organising. I mean, I, you know, I'm always struck by the first, sorry, you both opened your mouths then and I, I carried on regardless, but maybe I should let you. Uh, well, I'm wondering something. what you, what you feel. So you're the chief executive of Humanists UK. You're yes. very successful in that role. You've done it for many years. What is the purpose of that organization? Like, how would you explain what it's there to do for our listeners who don't necessarily know what Humanists UK is and, and think, why does there need to be an organization for people who are just not religious? 
Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Humanist UK is 125 years old this year. Um, it's um, and this is 2021, by the way. I know that these two are obviously probably going to delay before they put these things out for years and years, procrastinate and sit on this. Um, but at the moment, <laughs> it's 2021, so it's the 125th anniversary of, of Humanist UK. And you know, we've been around for a long time, and so it's, it's an organisation that's proved its utility, obviously, to to at least the people who've joined it in that time. And I think there are three main purposes. Uh, of Humanist UK and I think actually for my work internationally that these are through Humanist International are true of every humanist organization in the world which is that you know humanist organizations have a sort of triple purpose firstly there clearly are organizations that bring people together um, for like-minded um, fellowship and a sort of solidarity and it's the most common reason that people give when you, we ask them on, on the surveys you know um, uh, why they've joined that they always choose the sort of nebulous other box at the bottom which is it express my humanism you know and sort of they want to uh, join in with others um, in this now that of course is, is is very important in places in the world where um, people with our beliefs are under siege under threat um, criminals by virtue of what they believe and so on but it's true even uh, even in societies that are, are mainstream non-religious, like 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 in Britain, that there are people who um, wish to to get together simply with like-minded people, um, you know, people who are completely like-minded. And I think that's that's obviously a social function of a humanist organisation, even if it's something of an imagined community. You know, even if people don't see each other that 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 often. Um, so certainly, there's a there's there's that's that's the function the first function and together with that I think then goes the so still under that first heading then does go the um the personal development of those people um in their own humanism you know their their, their views are um changed and shaped and informed and challenged by their participation in that community um in all sorts of different ways mostly today of course online and um, so what does that part mean because uh, sorry I, I just I, I'm fascinated by this what do you does it mean to grow in your humanism? Because there's a there's an inherent, um, I don't want to say it's not a judgment, but there's an inherent sense of uh, of growth of that, that there's yeah. a possibility of movement there. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. Um, I, I I'll tell you only my observation over the last sort of fifteen or sixteen years of what happens to people when they. Uh, when they do um, join and take this approach. So typically people will join Humanist UK and they'll say something like, you know, I didn't know there was an organization like this, or I didn't know that there was a word for the things that I've believed all my life. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll say, I've just escaped from really high control religion and I'm just desperate to meet people who know it's all nonsense. You know, but but if they're if they're in it for the humanism rather than just the non-religion, for example, and we have both types of men, but let's say they're in it for the humanism, they'll they'll come along and they'll say, Oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't know there was a word for this. These beliefs, they really resonate with me. I've done your online quiz and I found that I have all the humanist uh, values and beliefs that you're talking about. Um, and then usually they'll, during, during, during their time, you know, they'll engage with the materials we have. We've got lots of stuff online about how to think about being good, how to, you know, how to think about what's true. And they'll begin, in my observation, they'll begin to weld more closely together the disparate beliefs and values that they've identified as being caught by the noun humanism into a more coherent more clearly expressed and reasoned worldview and on the basis of that um you know uh often go on to be activists and to take action on the basis of those beliefs that they've um that they've now assembled because a lot of people do I think, especially if they've grown up in religious families, which obviously, as I've said, not my experience, but a lot of people do um, sometimes feel that the 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 beliefs they've got, humans, I mean, that the beliefs they've got are somehow sort of second best or second rank or parasitic even on the religious beliefs they've grown up with um, in their own personal uh, journey in, in, in their lives. And especially when they start having children, you know, and think about their moral education, they'll think, oh gosh, how am I going to explain this? You know, and they, 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 they all sometimes have to resort back to the, uh, the moral lessons that their parents how on, earth gave will, them. how on earth will I be able to teach my children not to murder people without <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I know, have exactly. religion? It's... It would be so tricky and ah, really, but, how do you but... finesse that moral point? When you say that, Sanders, and I know, but you're going to feel really uh, silly in 20 years' time if your son's a murderer. <laughs> but the, you might already have done it. Who's to say? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, are you sure those people moved out? The, uh, <laughs> but I don't. I don't. 
I, I mean, I know it's not. I know it is actually simple, Sanderson. But some people do doubt themselves and their ability to do it, and they and they and they and they can't answer the 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 never-ending stream of whys, why, why, why that come out of their children's mouth when they're trying to explain why you should be kind to others, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think a lot of people do sort of start with that with that feeling that their beliefs are disparate. And I think that during 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 in the course of their participation in a humanist organisation, they they come to see that those beliefs aren't second best, that they're not incoherent, that they are coherent, that they fit together, that if they think about them a bit more, they're actually interrelated, you know, that there is a link between what they think about how you find out what is true and what they think about what morality is and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think that knitting together um, of those um, bits and pieces of beliefs and values that are out there in the zeitgeist or they've got from their own personal experience or from popular culture or wherever that knitting together into something that is you know recognizably integrated um is i think one of the functions of well whether it's a stated function or a desired function or not of a humanist organization it's one of the effects that i've perceived and observed in people who've participated and the participation these days of course has changed i mean we were a congregational organization to the 1950s right there's no no, no shame in admitting that um, and those congregations saying one thing and meaning another, but the, the, there's no shame in it. And there's genuinely no shame in it. Um, and, um, I, I, and I suppose that the, the function that those congregations serve now is still performed by humanist organizations, but in different ways. And I think that um, often it's now online. And I think that in fact, in a way, maybe by going online we've we've sort of returned to the function we had when we were a congregation through those sort of 20 or 30 years when people who were members were just members on a register and couldn't communicate with each other apart from you know, through the newsletter and in local groups and so on so actually it's probably more people are more in community with each other now as members of a humanist organization than um than they were in the late 20th century but that that function is is is, is still going so of course that's that's the, the first thing that's the first thing should i go on to the second thing what do you want to i was gonna uh, ask you about uh, again digging into that a bit more. Uh, we uh, I went in to see you a, a while back when you were some speaking to various folk about uh, humanism, and I think there was a bit of a project to go and yes, local organisation, yes, yeah, yeah, local. But then also there was, uh, I think you said that you put together a humanist was well-being or personal development resources or something like that, and it had proved immensely popular. But then uh, there were some people who thought, oh, no, this isn't what humanists should be about. And I just thought that that was quite that that uh, personal development angle of humanism seems to be something which uh, would I can really imagine that really resonating with a lot of people, but them also not thinking that that is what Humanist UK does. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because if I was about to come on to the second thing that Humanist UK does, which I was going to do in response to James's question, then it would have been, you know, that Humanist UK is 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 a campaigning platform, you know, advocates for certain types of social, political, legal change, cultural change as well, but mostly political and legal these days. And so, um, and that is, you know, what therefore a lot of people think um, it's about. Now, I see the two things as intrinsically linked, you know, I think that I mean, the first thing that we were talking about personal development and so on, and, and the second thing. Um, and if I were to go back to Harold Blackham and Yat Van Prague, as you know, I was talking about a moment ago, um, they did too, when they talked about the edification and fortification of, of um, the members of humanist organizations being what those organizations were about. That was the first thing they said. And the second thing they said is, and then directing our attention to, you know, the political causes that humanists espouse. Um, and, and I think those two things, are interlinked um, and I suppose you would say or you might say and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you that that can be the value of a congregation you know that a congregation provides fellowship to each other and then also um, a mutually reinforcing basis for external action for social action or for political action for, or whatever you know and I think that in in that sense again humanist organizations are, are a bit of the same sort of social unit um, here we are, Humanist UK, all people who um, believe that this life is the one life we have, all people who believe that um, in, in human development and in one chance that people have and people who believe in equal human dignity and therefore the equal opportunity to be fulfilled and to develop personally. So naturally, we turn our attentions out at the world 
and say, you know, why doesn't everyone have freedom of choice um, in their own lives? Um, why isn't there fairness in society about the distribution of that freedom and so on and so forth? And what can we do to try and improve that situation? And so um, I think the two are quite naturally uh linked together oh yeah yeah um, i think they i yeah. mean they're, they're, certainly when you go and look at the congregational community there's like uh politics and justice are as much a part of it as sort of personal growth and martin luther king you know he wasn't running a post office uh the though that's obviously you can get a lot done through the post uh the uh <laughs> not these as, days <laughs> and then has that been something a change of emphasis that you think that sort of that's something that sort of modern humanists or that sort of want more of or like where do you see the sort of all, I think like that's a good change? question I mean, yeah I mean I, I'm in a I'm in a nost not a nostalgic I'm in a contemplative mood at the moment since we are celebrating the 125th and you know one of the things we've been doing is going through the archives and it's it's been amazing um how many uh on how many sort of unremembered what's the other word for unremembered forgotten how many forgotten uh sort of humanist uh heroes there have been like you know you go through and think oh this is the this is the woman who campaigned for and won free school meals for children in in state schools 110 years ago and she was one of our members yeah blah 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 and you sort of go it's like a roll call who's this who invented the open university oh it's one of our members who's uh, and, and so on and so forth um and so and I, uh, what am I saying about that? I'm saying that I think that in answer to your question, I think probably it ebbs and flows, like the balance of the different activities changes. In the early 20th century, especially um, in the sort of like 1890 to 1930 type period, pretty much all they're doing is fighting. You know, their, 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 their campaigns for social justice, for racial justice, you know, in the UK, they, they hosted the first ever global conference against racism in 1911. And there's, there's they're doing all of that sort of um, stuff. And then... You know, in the in the mid twentieth century, they start doing a lot more stuff about people's choices in life, abortion law reform, as and from blah blah blah. And then to the end of the twentieth century, they're campaigning in a different way. But they sort of throughout that throughout that time, Humanist UK sort of slowly wasn't doing as much of the you know personal development work. It wasn't giving people resources um, for their own. Uh, value formation and um, exploration of their beliefs. And so I think that you're right, that when we sort of started to rebuild that program of work um, in the last 10 years or so, some people have, because by their nature, they were people who joined and subscribed in that time when campaigning was the, the principal work, um, by their nature not being interested, uh, so much interested in it. Um, I'm here to call social... Christians twats. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, I don't think that's ever been on our agenda. <laughs> Put it on um, a bus. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, well, yeah. I mean, so th there's, there's there's also definitely, of course, a, a, a qualitative difference in in the sentiment today than there was um, uh, twenty years ago at the at the the height of the publishing phenomenon known as the New Atheists. Um, yeah. So, what is that? Go a... into that. Like, what's the what are some of the changes you've seen? Because that was one well, of the, I one of the. I don't think I fully understand it myself. I mean, I think that. Um, certainly, there's there's no doubt at all that in the UK, at least, the the, the triggers for the for the new um, animus against explicit animus against religion on the part of the non-religious um, was 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 down to two things. I think obviously the the growing appearance within the back garden of the West and within the West, because these things have been happening um, overseas for some time, of Islamic extremism and terrorism inspired by um, Islam. I mean, you know, uh, Christopher Hitchens always said, and I think it was true, and Richard Dawkins still does say, you know, that um, their work was given impetus by 9-11 and that that was a sort of totemic event um, uh, for them. And obviously, like I say, although terrorism inspired by Islam have been claiming its victims all over the world before that point, um, that on, on quite a scale, you know, in, 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 in non-Western countries, um, that was an event when, when sort of the mass media brought this situation home to people. And rightly or wrongly, um, people, um, you know, were affronted uh, by that and turned their affront into a certain anti-religious animus, I think. And so that was that was definitely one of the causes. Also a more sort of um, uh, niche cause in, in, in the UK at the time was the sort of growing um, bullishness of Christian churches. 
and um, the Church of England in particular. I mean, it was in 2001 that the government announced that um, the Church of England was going to take over more schools, um, that the Church of England start, had its own internal report where they said, you know, that um, they had more children uh, praying in their state schools than they had parishioners. And this was an opportunity to sort of re-evangelise uh, the country. And they sort of upped their... Um, religiousness in a way I mean lots of people in England had got used to think of the Church of England as not really a religion you know and and, and more like a sort of uh, eccentric social phenomenon you know John Major when he was Prime Minister talking about people old 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 country maids or whatever country maids is important old maids um, in the countryside cycling to church in the to even song you know all that sort of um, Hovis bread type um, uh, view of, of 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 religion as sort of nostalgia um, was more common. People hadn't, I think, for a long time thought about the Church of England as actually being, you know, Christians and believers and and, and religious. And they and they upped their game and they said they wanted to be more like that. And so I think that was more prominent too. And so I think non-religious people sort of went, oh, um, this is all a bit much, and reacted against it. And so I think that 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 was. Um, uh, why, where that came from, why it's dissipated um, and, and and gone to some extent in the other direction, I don't know. But I think it's probably that um, uh, religion has, has 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 people's religious identities have somehow become the sort of thing that people feel needs to be treated with uh, um, a sort of respect in the same way that one might treat people's sexual orientation now or. Um, other uh, beliefs and and, and certain, you know UBU type attitude that people sort of now have got so they think almost it's a little bit rude um, to say something non-religious um, because it's an implied insult to people who who are religious and of course you see that with uh, in social media quite a lot and so that's changed I think the tone what people will accept young people especially I mean there are surveys now all the time which um, University of East London did one recently, uh, not just surveys, but like ac academic work that um, that shows that people are um, very, very tolerant um, of all sorts of terrible beliefs, you know, and that the the, the onus, the burden, is felt to be on the on the um, uh, on us to tolerate um, these things. Whether that's tolerance or a sort of indifference, I don't know, but the um, I think that's the way it shifted. Where do you draw the line on, uh, this is going to be a, a tricky one there, but this is what we're talking about. Uh, where do you draw the line on uh, Islamophobia? When does uh, the valid criticism of, of an idea become, uh, you would say, the criticism of a religious group of people? I think actually it's quite easy to tell when the diff you know, to tell when, when something is one thing or another. Because people, if they're d debating an idea or discussing an idea, usually discuss that idea right you know i sit here and say um i think that you know, there's no such thing as god and to believe that, that there is a god is wrong or um i think that um it's uh an affront to the equality of men and women if systems of thought uh develop the idea that it's incumbent on 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 a woman or even on a man to cover up for the sake of modesty to stop inflaming uh, of other passions or whatever and so, and so on and so forth people are you know it's really obvious what i'm saying there hopefully that i'm talking there about ideas which i disagree with and that i think are sort of immoral or 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 untrue um you know you don't hear that very often actually um i think that if a sentence starts with muslims dot 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 then you sort of know straight away that you're not then that the person who's saying it is not really talking about um uh, an idea or, or or a belief and that you know the muslims they are talking about are in fact a sort of ethnic group that they've created you know in their head in order to um to whip up not necessarily deliberately but um to further hatred or antagonism uh, towards them otherwise why say muslims i mean for a start you can't say that that noun is not one that can be followed by uh, a statement that will be 100% true, is it? And particularly if someone puts the word fucking in front of the word. <laughs> well, then, you you're know, almost, that, then you're that, definitely. Yeah. I think that's another good clue. Well, there's going to be something you know what's coming next. But like, I can certainly think that there would be some areas where critiques of uh, sort of ideas which are part of Islam would be, uh, could be labelled as that. How about you, James? What's your, uh, you've got your... Uh, fingers on the pulse of uh, the woke karate <laughs> in the US. Have you in America? 
Yeah, James is in the SJW world in quite a big way. Where where do you think the line? I'm between... a proud SJW. Yeah, um, I I think that it does. That conversation does have a different flavor in the United States, particularly given the intense Islamophobia that took over the country after 9-11 and uh, continues to exist. I think that it is fair to say that much of the United States is intensely Islamophobic and down to, you know, attempts in different states to legislate against the freedoms of Muslims in various ways. So I think that it does have a different quality, that conversation here. But in general, I think I agree with Andrew that as long as you're careful with how you word your criticisms and you say things like, I am not criticizing all Muslims when I say this. I just uh, disagree with this. Yeah, I don't, that's a good, I don't think that's a good start, actually, James, because sometimes people can can justly think, well, everything before the butt was <laughs> was just persiflage, and now we're, we're on to the meat of it. Some of yeah, my best I mean, friends are Muslim. That's right. I, think you, I don't think you should. Or maybe you have to say that in America. I don't know. Maybe it's very important no, to spell think, out your agenda ahead of time. I think it's good to be very explicit about what you're saying. And then if people take exception to it, you can say, look, this is what I actually said. Because it is also true that you will criticize religious beliefs of any religious group, Christians, Muslims, Mormons, whatever. And even if you're exquisitely careful about how you phrase your criticism, you will be accused of being phobic in some way. Right. That is well, just the culture in which course, we live. And sometimes that is because those people who um, uh, who have heard you um, actually do feel very hurt by what you've said. I mean, yes. I think the you know the other thing is that the other aspect of this, which I think is we, we occasionally miss or people occasionally miss, is that you know even for some people, even the distinction we've just made is meaningless. Like they they wouldn't accept even that the discussion of an idea is, is the discussion of an idea, because it's not an idea for them. It's uh, an identity and a feeling and a, and, and a part of their, their their self and so on. Um, and I think that's very difficult for us to deal with because come back to a sort of Hellenic ideal there is that we were almost you know we're able to sort of sit back and go ah let us discuss let us neatly divide ideas from the people and 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 you know make that distinction and here we are talking about two separate things and we must if make as long as we make that clear it'll be very clear to everyone that that's two different things that we're talking about but of course it's it's not clear to everyone is it and and so you know I yeah and 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 that is a real problem actually We've seen it very recently in this, yeah, in this problem with a school that used a cartoon of Mohammed, right? I was just going to, I think that we can expect citizens in a pluralistic democracy to understand that their religious beliefs are subject to criticism and that, yeah, they might feel like a criticism of their, their beliefs is a criticism of their person. And I can appreciate that some people might feel that way, but nonetheless, I think I want to assert that they have a responsibility to overcome that feeling in order to participate in a pluralistic democracy in which people can have different views. So, I mean, I'm quite robust in this. And I think the- I think that's in that you're part of your Americanism now, though, is that I think what you've just said makes it really clear that you've been in America for a long time. Really, why is that? I, I, I don't think that the sort of prefacing that sort of statement with citizens of a pluralistic democracy or blah, blah, would, would sound very meaningful to um, British ears, not really. I don't think people- Really? Yeah, I really do. I've noticed that in, in America, it's easier to frame these things in, in, in the language of civics and that that space has been quite empty in the UK for the last, you know, few, I mean, I agree with you completely. Um, yeah, good. I'm glad you said that because I was getting worried there. But I think probably America is a more is a place where that argument can run in a way that the UK, UK would be like. A lot of people in the UK would be like, "Well, I don't see myself primarily as a citizen of a, a pluralistic democracy. I see myself as you know a British person living in this country." And you know, they're not the same ideas of citizenship. What you've said could also be said, I suppose, of France, but people wouldn't say it quite like that in France. What do you think, Sanderson? Did did James sound very American to you then? I mean, if can you imagine saying to um, someone I just sounded from... like a bit of a tosser, but that was no, no. Fine. I mean, I think no, it was just very different. I think I don't think that you could sit down and make that argument with someone from the Muslim Council of Britain, whereas maybe you know, from a, from a, an American Muslim group, they could they could buy into that. I mean, I do want to say that it doesn't work often, right? Oh, it like, doesn't I work. Can, okay. it, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. People will still criticize you, but I still feel confident in my in the ethical position that I'm taking, right? I think that oh, you're that definitely argument, right. Right. Yeah, I, th yeah, I feel yeah. I'm right, right? I don't know that, 
that people say, oh, yes, oh, of course, you're right. Yes, of oh, course, as a citizen of a pluralistic democracy, I should be able to separate my beliefs from my identity. You know, they go, oh, you fucking bigot. But, oh, I but, see. Oh, right. but I still think that it's a good a, a good way of framing the issue intellectually. That's what I, but I think that's what I mean, I think. Runs into some things where you know the you would go well actually as the person that you are as the person that you are discussing it is within my right to decide when something is phobic against me and my identity is not up for discussion uh, and you know that is uh, you know you're not going to define what racism is to a black person you're not going to define what uh, uh, transphobia is to a trans person you're not going to define what anti-semitism is to a Jew so now you are saying that uh, uh, that you are saying that you know what Islamophobia is like that runs into something which is I, I can imagine actually for within the humanist society that will cause some issues in other areas i I... we're gonna take a little break from the podcast hope you've been enjoying it i really love the chat just to say that uh, whilst we're a podcast where we discuss these ideas we're also a community which will help you put them into action so if you like what you hear you want to dive into it more you can go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership and go and find more about joining in the community. Now back to Andrew. But that's actually real. I mean, that is real. You're right. That, that, and it is, a, it is a reality that, that the fact is that, you know, religions, religions and beliefs are at the same time like politics. You know, like I, I, you can be like a, a Muslim in the same way that you're um, a Democrat. Um, and at the same time as they can be things like that, they can be things like sexual orientation or race. You know, they, you can be a Muslim in the same way that you're gay, you know, in terms of your, your feelings about it. Um, they, uh, they can be, they are both by beliefs and an identity. And so like the, the tender spot um, that are sort of intrinsic characteristics like sexual orientation or sex or race make us feel uh, is, 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 is sharply injured when we hear criticism or disagreement or, or offense that same tender spot is there for people with um religious identities at the same time as their religion is also a series of commitments capable of you know rational in, in, in interrogation and that's definitely true and i think you know it's hard to navigate that yeah i i, I think that's well put it is it's both a, a sort of chosen identity subject to rational analysis and also a p a component of someone's self that is very personal. But I think that the, the reason why I feel confident in my position, particularly in the United States, is because religion is so powerful and hegemonic, right? I'm definitely in the minority fighting against the hegemonic in power, but also because uh, it has such a profound and direct effect on my life. I mean, they are trying to pass laws that make me illegal, not the other way around. So I feel quite comfortable saying that I'm, I'm allowed to criticize what they're trying to do to me. So since you, I mean, you've gone and seen humanism and it's when you started some 15, 16 years ago, it must have been answering certain, uh, as you said, certain needs in society. Like what are these, the, the new needs that you uh, see people sort of like coming to humanism with or uh, the new challenges that, you know. Well, the, the third idea- area of our work that we haven't discussed discussed at all of course is in the is the community services side so I mean I think that definitely um the first two aspects that I've spoken about the sort of personal development humanists you know uh like-mindedness um has changed its quality over the years and it's it's um it's nature to some extent but it's it's remained you know uh, pretty consistently what it what it's always always has been and our advocacy and campaigning work the same but the third area of community services probably changed the most um and this is an area which is always changing of course because in the last century or so you know the sort of community services that humanist organizations in this country have provided um have changed in response to the environment and to the needs that people had you know the, the we once ran adoption agencies and housing associations because non-religious people could not get those services because they were run by churches or where they were run by the public bodies they required you to be religious to show you a good character you know and um and and in other parts of the world humanist organizations do all sorts of similar services still you know care homes um orphanages uh medical services social work of of all types um where religious providers have a monopoly on those things um and so community services are always changing but certainly in the last 
15 years our community services have changed a lot um obviously funerals have remained um funerals and weddings and, and ceremonies have remained an extremely important service and of course they've been incredibly uh, successful and in scotland now there, there are more humanist marriages than there are catholic ones church of scotland ones you know it's, it's a great success story um in england wales of course not the case but in northern ireland even you know now now extremely large and funerals have been so successful that you know we've we've acquired mimickers and, and competitors who are now more numerous than our own humanist celebrants you know we've gone from being the only provider of um non-religious funerals to be more so but I'm just going to changes. stop you for one second there to quickly go and discuss the people who were fronting your campaign for uh, humanist marriage in Northern Ireland, who were the most gorgeous couple I know. that ever existed. They could have been fronting a campaign for anything. I know, There's and everyone ones- would have bought into it. One was a professional football player. The other was some Instagram model. And they're like, a model. Hi. Is a mo- yeah, yeah. I mean, stunning. I, yeah, they were, we, we lucked out, it's true. And he, he, was a, he was a footballer for Ireland as well, for the national team, as well as, um, yeah, so, I mean, Eunan and Laura, they, yeah. they were amazing. We couldn't have asked for better. <laughs> and we got this, this couple to front the, uh, the, the campaign. And they're incredibly dedicated. Laura had set up um, Atheist NI, which was a, a, a group in Northern Ireland and was then became a patron of Northern Ireland Humanist. So she was incredibly driven and intelligent and incredible media performer as well, explaining. Um, I think this might be why James was saying that our conversation was deeper because I just really wanted to drill in and just like highlight. (laughs) But she was also a model, Sanderson, you're right, and a very successful one. Um, But she was mostly an incredibly intelligent woman who um, put her case forward with, you know, very eloquently. And and Eunan the same, apart from he wasn't a woman. And so um, they they were a perfect couple. And I think that that was one of the things really that, that, that's one of the things we need to remember actually is that, um, when we're taking action, we should more often put people's own real experiences at the forefront of these things. You know, it's very uh, difficult for, for people to um, understand uh, why the humanists are kicking up a fuss about marriage laws or why the humanists are kicking up a fuss about the school curriculum until they hear from a couple in their own words why they are being, how they feel about being denied um, the opportunity by the state to mark their marriage in the way that is of, of, of most personal significance to them, or in the case of parents, how they feel when their children come home every day, um, talking about the things that have happened uh, in school to do with religion that you know they just don't want any part of in their homes and so on and so forth. Um, and so, um, yes, yeah, so, so weddings in Northern Ireland are extremely popular, but the, the, the changes in community services have probably been the, the, the biggest in terms of new things that we've done. So for example, in the last five years, we introduced a whole new program um, uh, of pastoral care in prisons and hospitals and in a sense that's a reviving of something we did in the 50s which was wound up when secular counselling became more available to people but actually that's less available now than it was in, in, in hospitals and prisons and there was also um, a uh, a new need that was identified really for like-minded care especially going by the good experience in the Netherlands where the Dutch humanists have provided uh, what they call chaplaincy when they're translated into English, but it's not actually called chaplaincy in Dutch, um, humanist equivalent in prisons, hospitals, universities, and the armed forces, where it's the biggest type of provision now in the armed forces, I believe, um, ahead of the Lutheran and the Catholic provision. So um, we introduced that very, very recently um, and is now in a fifth of prisons, um, and I think over 40% of hospitals in England. Um, so um, that's that's the, the biggest change that I've experienced in the in the in the in the provision of direct services to non-religious people, and the the beneficiaries there are really um, the fifty-two percent or fifty-three percent, I think it is now, fifty-three percent of people who call themselves non-religious. In our other work, we're sort of benefiting the seven percent of people who call themselves humanists, or the thirty percent of people who've got humanist beliefs and values but don't call themselves humanists. Um, whereas in the in the in the, in the provision of community services we're really benefiting the non-religious just over half the population in ceremonies in pastoral care and the other entirely new um program service program we have is is for apostates you know which is called faith to faithless which is not the name we chose it was uh, set up by people um from the grassroots and we t- took it in as a program which is a peer support um, and mentoring and and and, and uh, resources for people who are leaving very high control religions 
and that started off as being very much about sort of ultra-orthodox uh, Judaism or um, exclusive brethren and Jehovah's Witnesses from the sort of uh, Christian side and um, some, you know, very uh, strict uh, versions of Islam. So, um, and has now sort of snowballed into all sorts of different religions that people um, uh, have, have, have moved away from. And that's a big uh, new program as well. So I think that in, in those areas, um, there's been enormous change in, 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 in my time um, overall. I don't know if that answers your question, actually, Samson. I mean, it might be um, you were looking for, for something, something else. How I noticed change in society or something or in the need for our growth is what I've noticed, really. I mean, when I think about the database of our members and supporters um, 15 years ago, and it was about five or 6,000 people, and now it's just over 100,000, you know, so growth is the thing that's really been um, all those millions of people who are now, now the beneficiaries of our, our ceremonies. I mean, look at Humanist Society Scotland, as I just said, have gone from zero legal marriages to being the lion's share of national marriages in Scotland. Growth, growth, growth is, the, is probably the biggest uh, change that I've experienced. I love the fact that we've talked about like some really high-minded ideas. We started off in the Hellenic. We've sort of talk, spoken about the services that offer people who are disenfranchised, the challenging political campaign, and you've ended on a growth, baby, growth. It's big. It's big, Sanderson. I'm not going to lie. The graph is pointing up and to the right. I'm going to drop my microphone, switch off the green stonks. screen. <laughs> stonks, but I think stonks, that is stonks. sort of interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, I, I never thought that 7% of people in a YouGov survey in the UK would identify as humanists. I mean, that's more people who identify as Muslim. Um, and I think that if we, we, we didn't run that poll 15 years ago, but my suspicion would be it would have been almost no one, like not enough to register on a, um, on a, on a survey, I think on a YouGov representative poll of the country. And so I think the growth in, 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 in public knowledge of the humanist idea and the humanist proposition is actually a, and that's a penumbra around the hundred thousand of people who are now the sort of solid um, hardcore of, of members and supporters on the database. But I think that, that that's true. How much personal credit do you take for that growth? None. Andrew? None? None, Come none, on. none at all. None Give at all. yourself some credit. It's, you've been a pretty no, amazing spokesperson so. for this worldview. I've been a competent administrator. Oh, yes. That's, that's what everybody thinks myself. of you. That's what you've got to say. Inspirational international <laughs> icon. <laughs> Amulet of humanism across the world. Amulet. That yeah. makes me sound like some sort of some plot device in a, in a terrible teen fantasy novel. You rub him that... three times and uh, George <laughs> And look out. at the size of it. I know, exactly. Look how it's grown. I think that... Um, I think that I've, 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 I've certainly had a very enjoyable time the last 15 years. Mm. Things seem to have gone well. I mean, I think that the, I think a lot of the, a lot of the work that's been done, of course, has been um, uh, liberating the potential of people who were already with us, really, you know, help, helping the patrons who'd been uh, silently on our books for, for a while um, to start giving us quotes about why they were humanists, you know, Stephen Fry, blah, blah, blah. Um, and putting those things out there and, 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 and the staff and the celebrants and the, you know, we've got a small office of 28 people, but we've got a massive volunteer team of over 700. And that's before you even get to the hundreds of celebrants, the hundreds of pastoral carers and, 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 and everybody else. Um, and so um, I think that uh, they've all done terribly well. Such a shame to leave you on that. It could have been better, you know. I mean, one of the things is that we've had a very, you know, my time as chief executive has been the ten years. I've been, I've been there sixteen years as a member of staff. But when I was, when I took over as chief executive, you know, we were just about the government had announced a big national consultation on values and a written constitution, and humanist philosophers had been um, sought by government to join this group. Um, you know, we were there was a new national curriculum about to come out that made humanism compulsory. Um, there was a big, you know, there's loads going on. Um, and then, of course, there was the 2010 general election. Oh, that's when. Uh, and all those things that, yeah exactly so the, the, his his faith went from being my faith is a bit like uh, magic fm in the chilterns it goes in and out to suddenly being told we're a christian it, country in fact i'm evangelical about my christianity that's yeah. a huge change mate so the uh, 10 years has been quite bad for us actually in that way 
not that they, I'm not saying oh the Gordon Brown government was amazing, but there were all sorts of initiatives underway. Ed Balls, when he was Education Secretary, for example, in the last year of the Brown government, was the only uh, Secretary of State for Education in 50 years to have introduced curbs on state faith schools when he changed the admissions code to limit the discrimination that they were allowed to to do uh, to practice in their in their admissions. You know, and it's just been an absolute um, slog from for in the last 10 years to, to achieve anything mm. you know in the in the political environment it's been inhospitable but also national attention has been on other things you know so we've missed a, a lot of um a lot of chances that we could have had so i do think that um it could have been even better i could have achieved something but unfortunately <laughs> the wind was against me and so if people have been listening to this and they've been thinking i'd like to go and get involved uh, what are some ways that they can go and sort of uh, take action, contribute, uh, go and find celebrants or whatever else there might be. It's all online, isn't it? At humanists.uk. Humanists.uk, a great web address. Everything is there and more. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew. This has been an absolute delight. Uh, it's been, and really, you're doing such good work, and it's been wonderful to get to know you in my Sunday Assembly journey, and you know the and life on this journey, and you've known James Angers. So, Thanks a lot. Uh, James, that was a great conversation. We both love Andrew. What were the bits which you really uh, took from it? Firstly, I just want to say again how much I love Andrew Copson. He's a great human being as well as the great chief executive of Humanist UK. I adored the bit at the start when we ask all our guests about what their religious upbringing is. And obviously, Andrew did not have a religious upbringing like me. He grew up in a non-religious home. And sometimes people think that that means that we sort of believe in nothing, that there's no positive content to our beliefs, it's just an absence. And so I loved how he talked about what he called his sort of Hellenic approach to life, this idea of the use of the mind to improve our ideas about the world and to improve the world, our responsibility for each other, the sense that we are improvable as individuals and we have responsibility to do our best because that just that's exactly the sort of worldview that i was raised with and as we spoke about it you know i do sometimes feel like a bit of an alien in that perspective but it's nice to connect with someone who has the same view so i really appreciated that yeah i when i think about that i found uh I found that answer really interesting because he was like going, I haven't read any religious things, which I think is a bit one of those uh, things which sometimes Richard Dawkins says, I've never read any theologians. And you're like, that's strange that you would not have read, because, you know, these are great thinkers about like some of life's huge issues and uh, not looking at them uh, is, you know, seems odd when you've read so much other stuff. Uh, the yeah, people often assume that I had a really religious upbringing, but like I really didn't. Like I, you know, I've ended a bit like you. I ended up going to church a lot due to because my school made me go to church, but it wasn't like a major part of my life or identity or how I really saw the world. So uh, I think there's an assumption that I'm trying to fill in something which I, which I used to have but now don't. I, I actually found our conversation about. Uh, the limits of sort of defining uh, what you can talk about interesting and it made me think that maybe we should get into some more of that stuff uh, on the podcast as well because those sort of things are very you know I don't fully know how to negotiate them always and there is the sort of hard position of Oh, we should just be able to discuss everything. We should just, uh, you know, if it's just an idea, it's just an idea. Uh, but that's not really the world that we're in. But uh, yeah, I really loved uh, chatting to him. I think that was important too, right? The, the sense that it's sometimes difficult to tell what is the right way to approach talking critically about religion. Because part of our project in the Lifefulness Project is not just if we want to take the good things from religious practices and communities and make them available to everybody, that means making a judgment about what is good and what is bad. And that inherently involves some sort of criticism of existing religious structures, beliefs, practices. And sometimes because these are so personal issues, it can be difficult to know how to do that criticism in a responsible way. So I appreciated Andrew's thoughts on that, too. I really liked listening back to that conversation. It's quite weird because when I did it, I 
was in the middle of moving house. I had to go into our new neighbor's house because we don't yet have Wi-Fi. And so that's a huge hassle. And I was absolutely knackered. And then uh, I was also felt a bit like I missed a trick when Andrew was said he didn't take anything from religion. I would love to have gone and delved into that more, but then uh, the conversation went in a different way. So that is one thing which, looking back on it, I think, you know, we got to an interesting place where we started, where we got to that place where we said, you know what, you can't really separate things out into secular and religious if you come from a secular point of view, uh, which which is, I think, where we got to, but I, I wanted to dig into that a bit more. Uh, luckily, we can have him on again. But uh, that was really, uh, yeah, really love that convo. Uh, thanks so much to Andrew for uh, taking part in it. And like I said, if you are uh, interested in these ideas and if you want to go and join our mission, which is to see if we can start communities which have got all the best bits of a church a mosque or a synagogue but in a way which is uh, non-religious secular uh, uh, spirituality in a way that everyone can join in then go and uh, check out the site and uh, yeah can't wait to hear from you oh this is the part where i say thanks yeah so thanks to andrew thanks to james for being my brilliant co-host thanks to mavs for editing this uh, and to Roman Rapak and Miro Schott, who made the music that you're listening to right now.